Hello and welcome back to Lessons from Award-Winning Publisher Podcasts from Media Voices. I'm Peter Houston and I'm learning all I can about making successful podcasts from some of the winners of the 2021 Publisher Podcast Awards. Next up this season is Van Newkirk, Senior Editor at The Atlantic and host of the Floodlines Podcast, the winner of her Best Limited Series Award in 2021. My first question for Van was, how did the Floodlines Podcast come about? Well, I uh, was a, when we started Floodlines, I was a staff writer at The Atlantic. Uh, I had not done any formal narrative podcasting. I'd done a couple interviews for a couple things, but nothing really long term and nothing on that level of scope uh, and nothing in that format. So um, how it came to be was we were spinning up, really, uh, the bulk of our podcast department under our EP, Catherine Wells. And I've been thinking for a while that this was the time and the opportunity to do something serious about Hurricane Katrina. It meant a lot to me as an event Um, It said a lot of things that I thought were important about the work that I was doing, and uh, I hadn't heard anything like that. So I pitched it. We went through lots of iterations of trying to figure out what it might look like. But basically, from the time it was accepted until it was finished, I was a full-time podcast reporter and host. So uh, I had to learn on the fly. How long did that take? How long was it from here's an idea until you, you released it? So we pitched it in uh, December 2018. We, we got it approved and announced in March of 2019. And we published the episodes in March 2020. So about a year. In terms of the reporting that you did, you were in the field in New Orleans. How long were you there? We were there, I'd say, total uh, about three months time total. You know, most of that summer of 2019 was spent going back and forth, uh, interviewing people both in their homes and in studios in New Orleans. We had a couple interviews in in, in other places, too. Uh, We went to Baton Rouge. Uh, We had some interviews in the studio in uh, D.C. But just in terms of like going out and exploring and uh, we went to lots of museums. I talked to lots of people who weren't in the final cut, Uh, lots of experts, lots of people around the city. That was a, a solid two, three months time. It's interesting you saying people didn't make the final cut. When you set out, did you think you knew what this looked like and sounded like and then it changed? Or was it pretty much what you always thought it was going to be? One thing that lots of people noticed early when they listen is there aren't really a whole lot of, uh, say, talking heads or experts yeah. that come in and explain something. What ended up being the shape of it i thought it was much more effective to basically let people's audio and let people's own feelings and own understandings of what happened explain themselves Uh, so we originally did start down the road of talking to lots of experts these were people who were critical for us putting the show together for us understanding what was in front of us and they were you know they're in our notes Um, we recommend their books they were, you know, I, I still talk to them today because they were amazing. Uh, but in terms of what we wanted to present, I felt that it would be more powerful if maybe you don't have all the historical context in front of you that a historian might have. But maybe it's more important to get 
just more of the 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 first person experience and to make your own conclusion yeah and i definitely think that comes across like some of the stories that are so I don't know, it's just so real. It's like sat across from someone listening to them telling the story about what went on. I can't remember the guy's name, but he talked about the hurricane party that he ended up. <laughs> and that, was, that one just stuck with me. He was so such a live wire, that guy. Yeah, amazing. Fred, he was, a, he was fun to interview. We had a couple sessions with him uh, in studio in New Orleans. And, you know, especially when you're that sort of in a really intimate enclosed space it was you know as a studio not a whole lot of ventilation it's just you in a closed off <laughs> room and he takes up the entire room with his presence that's for it <laughs> that that kind of interviewing is i guess very different from the sort of interviewing you would do when you're writing a feature i mean i spoke to Catherine wells about this before and she says you know when you're writing you can explain things in a different way and you've got more context whereas in the audio interviews you have to actually have to let people or encourage people to say what it is you want them to say because there's no other way for the audience to figure it out did you find that shift easy or difficult do you recognize it oh certainly uh it was it was a challenge um, and we did some very sort of mechanical brass tacks sort of training for figuring out how to do it properly. Uh, I would like to say that it was, you know, just feel and I, I came to it and, and it was natural. <laughs> but no, it took months and months of training, of listening to radio interviews, of figuring out what was good about certain ones and what I thought was lacking from others and thinking about what we could get from an interview that you could not get anywhere else in a story about Hurricane Katrina. So, I mean, the facts of what happened in this flood and disaster don't really need a first-person interview with people who went through it to convey that information, right? Just the sort of chronological timeline of what happened. But what it felt like to go through that, the different emotions coursing through your mind, you know, what something smelled like, what pain or whatever you were carrying in your body. Those are things that a person can give you that nobody else can give you. Right. And yeah. those are things that are not necessarily important or critical in an in a interview for print. Mm -hmm. So I had to really switch what I, you know, what I was listening for, what I thought constituted a good interview. <laughs> this is a weird question, maybe, but. Did you enjoy doing that more than writing or did you get more from it than writing or is it two different things? Well, I think I've brought a lot of a lot of it back to my writing. I really had a, a, a good oh, experience um, and it opened up, I think, a, a new world of what I can expect and what I can gain from interviews. Uh, I think originally a lot of them, especially since most of what I did was political reporting and a lot of that is you know i don't really care about a politician's sort of inner inner mind or feelings about a, a thing i want to know if it's going to pass i want to know what's going to happen i want to know why something happened right and so i deprioritized the more intimate the more emotional uh things but now that i start now that i have that in the repertoire now that i know how to listen for them and, and you know use silence and be comfortable with silence and uh, be comfortable with ambiguity i think the interviews are much more rich 
even even if I'm doing it just for print. I'm getting more from people. I'm getting better connection with people. I'm understanding better. And if I understand better, it, just from a pure you know, uh, mechanical level, I can explain better. Your average publisher listening to this is thinking, oh my God, this thing is amazing. You know, this is like a full-on documentary series that I would watch on the TV. Do you think there's anything that, you know, your average publisher who's not got the sort of resources that the Atlantic can bring to something can still do in this kind of space? Can people make these sort of narrative podcasts? Oh, certainly. Uh, one thing that I would stress about sort of our timeline and our uh, resource allocation here is, it, say if we did this again, it would be much less intense, much less intensive. A lot of that uh, time and investment was spent trying to figure out just how to do it in the first place, <laughs> just how to get our feet on the ground. A couple of things we learned that are going to be easy applications for the next one is you know we learned to rely on uh, people who were on the ground uh, there, you know, that we could not do all this ourselves. So we brought along a couple months in our amazing uh, consultant producer, uh, Katie Rechtal, who is a local reporter from New Orleans, who has done everything, you know, all the, the award-winning journalism, amazing journalists in New Orleans, who knows the ground. So who can help us out with those things. Uh, in terms of interviewing, you know, it, it, we started out with the idea that it was gonna be more of a film-like documentary style, that we needed all these talking heads. And we, we actually found one reason that I think the the, the show works is because you know, the, the episodes are actually pretty short. <laughs> they're usually, they're, you know, yeah. the longest ones hit 30 to 40 minutes. Um, we found we were able to cut a lot of things that people think are necessary in a documentary form, like, you know, your traditional expert interviews, like really heavy contextual sort of setting, a lot of narration just by letting interviews breathe. So those things are actually cheaper <laughs> in the long term yeah. in, in, in terms of investment and time. Um, and those are things that, you know, obviously we would reach for first on our second try. Do you think part of the secret is to record way more than you're actually going to end up with? Well, I think that's the secret for every documentary. Um, <laughs> if you don't have more in the cutting room than you do on the, in the final product, I don't think that's going to be a good final product. But, you know, there are limits um, to your ability to do that. And I think there is a point of diminishing returns where if you're just trying to go out and boil the ocean, that's not really conductive. You still have to be pointed, you still have to know what you're going after. You still have to be very intentional. Our planning is what took the longest, trying to figure out what we wanted out of each interview. Uh, I made scripts for my questions for each interview um, and trying to anticipate what would happen in interviews and trying to anticipate if I got this from an interview, who would I need to talk to next to uh, round it out, to get the, the proper perspective. Those are things uh, that will keep you from interviewing everybody in the world and from turning over every stone and will help you very early on shape what the final ambitions and limitations of your project are. So although you maybe don't know what the final thing is going to look like or sound like you, you go in with a solid idea of the point you're trying to make. Is that fair? Right. You can, you, you can basically come up with sort of your best and worst case scenarios. 
If you get something that's amazing, you know how to incorporate it. You can know what is relevant, what's not relevant, and you can build in some flexibility for say, if you get somebody interesting who doesn't really fit your original narrative, you can plan for putting that in too. So there's, I think when you have those understandings at the outset, it gives you a bit of a roadmap. I listened to your interview with Nick Qua. He called the Floodlights the best sounding podcast of the year, which I absolutely wouldn't argue with. Do you think the music played a big part? Oh, music played a huge part. Uh, you know, I, I, every day I, I, I thank the universe for David Herman, uh, for our uh, engineer, music director, and uh, for Christian Scott, because without their genius frankly this podcast wouldn't be what it was uh, this is one of the sort of uh, i don't like to call it serendipity because there was some real intent in uh in, you know getting david on board and and trying to find music that represented what we were yeah. trying to do but we did get lucky <laughs> we were fortunate that christian was game we were fortunate that he happened to be doing a show at the kennedy center which is right next door to the atlantic offices <laughs> um we the stars aligned for us and i'm grateful for that because the music was tonally perfect we were able to, to really convey information at this kind of you know subconscious level with the music with the sound that also made us able to make these things slimmer and reduce the context just because the music was that good at giving us the mood. I've listened to the the, the hundred trombones part that you talk about with Nick. Oh yeah. And it's it's just intense. <laughs> Absolutely intense. Yeah, and, and Anthony Braxton, that was just I mean, when David first sent that clip to us I didn't know much about what was going in Floodlines, but I knew that was going in. <laughs> I knew that was going in. That was amazing. Do you still think people should be making more of an effort when it comes to music on their podcasts? I think so. And I think, again, there are ways to uh, think about the principles of what we did sound-wise that are useful. You know, I've, I've been teaching some of this to, to students who are doing their own podcast, who are basically using, you know, the free libraries of music that are in Audacity and other, you know, the programs they have, right? And one thing I think is useful across the board is to think about the moods, to think about uh, what a piece of music uh, brings to your mind, to be comfortable with silence and to use it, use silence as a tone setting too. And... I think there's kind of a, a, a tendency, and it was in my mind, um, to want every moment to sort of have this like dramatic sound attached to it. It makes it sound more important. But uh, we really found the best dividends from sound when we were able to convey whimsy and joy and puzzlement. And, you know, if you can expand your sort of idea of what dramatic music looks like or th sounds like to beyond you know the 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 the, the television special uh <laughs> tense strings you know it's not just a crescendo that you're looking for right do you have anything else going on anything else in the pipeline uh nothing right now um we are brainstorming next things but nothing is set 
Uh, I think it was good for us to just take a little time off, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Um, And uh, to also just let Floodlines do its thing. Uh, So now we are going back to the drawing board slowly to figure out what's next. But I have nothing I'm committed to. Are you happy with it? Are you happy with the way it went and the the sort of reception that it got? I'm thrilled. Um, uh, First and foremost, what I wanted to do was something that uh, honored and did right by the people who were so kind as to share their lives with us. That's my first priority. And I think we're able to do that. I think uh, one thing that I'm happy about is when we shared it with people, when we shared it with the people we interviewed, they recognized themselves. They were happy with the product. They thought that we put it together in a way that, that, uh, you know, accentuated their points and um, didn't misrepresent them. So that was my first goal. But beyond that, uh, I think the way it's connected with listeners uh, has been just amazing to to witness, seeing that people found it useful in explaining even, say, the pandemic moment of today and, and, and the limitations of American government. That was pretty cool. Um, and seeing people who did weren't interviewed but also went through Katrina saying that it was uh, true to life, that it was accurate, that it was we didn't take the kind of shortcuts that are so easy to take in this kind of story. That was gratifying. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. And I am I still just like I love seeing people who listen to it for the first time and, and hearing their response. I absolutely loved it, I have to say. I, I listened to it one go. I went for a huge, long walk. And, uh, and pretty much listened to it all in one go. <laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> I really loved it. That's the good thing about it. It's short enough to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, it was kind of sad hearing some of those stories for the first time so many years afterwards. Maybe in the States, you know, people know these things more than, than over here, but the, the story about the shootings on the bridge, that was chilling, to be honest, and I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, it was it was astonishing to me, the, 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 the amount of things that people said they had not learned about that was part of what we thought the opportunity was here number one there's just a whole generation now of of adults even who were too young to absorb the story firsthand which makes me feel old but you know it's it's a good opportunity audience wise uh but when we really get into the media critique it's clear that like what a lot of people absorbed what a lot of people took away even those who were watching at the time was heavily uh, you know, sort of biased and also uh, constrained in, during the time when the cameras were, were there uh, the most, you know, heavily. So a lot of people don't know about what happened next. A lot of people don't don't know about what happened in the in the hearings or what happened when people got back to New Orleans. And so we thought those were places where we could really dig in and, and give people that information. And the whole misinformation aspect of it, which is just resonates so much now, um, that, was, that was scary. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, 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 it hits today. We, <laughs> I did not expect that we would uh, have something out that was so useful for understanding the, the January 6th insurrection in, in, the, in America. But, you know, some things uh, are cyclical, some things are uh, thematic. Thank you for listening to Lessons from Award-Winning Publisher Podcasts from Media Voices. 
And a massive thank you to Van for sharing his podcasting insights so honestly. You can see the shortlist for the 2022 Publisher Podcast Awards over at publisherpodcastawards.com. This year's awards ceremony will be back in London on April the 27th. And depending on when you're listening to this, you can still buy tickets. Come along and meet the best podcasters in publishing. Get your tickets on publisherpodcastawards.com.